One quick note before we get into this episode, Ruth and I wanted to say thanks for everyone who's been following the project. We're going to stick with our every other week release schedule for the time being, which gives us time to speak with people that have been reaching out and check out new information as we receive it. Ruth and I both have full-time jobs, so we're working on this as much as we can. Shameless plug here, but if you're interested in helping us out, please like and share this podcast with friends or family who you think might be interested. Regarding this episode, you're going to hear some clips taken directly from police interviews on the night of the murder, and the audio can be a little tough to follow in some places. So we've compiled a complete transcript of the entire episode so that you can read along if you want to. There's a link to that transcript in the show notes. So without further ado. It's about 9.30 a.m. on March 26, 1990. Police have responded to a 911 call from the chapel at Covenant Theological Seminary in St. Louis about a woman, Elizabeth McIntosh, who was found dead in the men's bathroom. Two hours after the initial call, it's clear to police that this is a homicide, not a suicide, as the original 911 call said. And it's not like anything the local cops have ever dealt with. The Creve Corps police request help from the St. Louis Major Case Squad, a group of officers from around the St. Louis area who help work a single crime scene. So now every officer on the scene is looking at some of the initial statements they received from witnesses, and they're fanning out to talk to more people. They're looking for anyone who saw or says something suspicious. As two of the officers on the scene work their way through the chapel, they're approached by a Covenant student who identifies himself as Michael, Elizabeth's immediate boss on the house cleaning staff. One of the officers asks if he had been in the building that morning, and Michael responds, Yes, I was looking for Elizabeth. I saw her coat in the lobby, so I knew she was here. The other officer asks, You came into the building looking for Elizabeth and didn't find her? No, Michael says. I didn't see Elizabeth, just her coat. The other officer follows up, questioning again, You came into the building looking for Elizabeth, saw her coat, knew she was here but couldn't find her? Michael responds, I didn't look in the men's bathroom. Elizabeth is sensitive about people walking in on her while she's in the men's bathroom. At this point, I can imagine the officers looking at each other with raised eyebrows. They show Michael into one of the chapel classrooms and ask him to make a written statement about all his movements that morning. Then they contact one of the officers in charge and say that they were uncomfortable with the comments that Michael made to them and that they both noticed a very nervous person. Pretty much from that moment and continuing for the next 33 years, Michael was the main person of interest, although he's never been charged and he still maintains his innocence in the unsolved murder of Elizabeth McIntosh. This is True Believer, Episode 3, The Prime Suspect. The suspicions of the police revolve around an incident that started about two weeks before Elizabeth's death. In this episode, we'll talk about that incident, and you'll hear Michael describe his interactions with Elizabeth, in his own words, in interviews conducted by the police. Here's Detectives George Hodak and Dennis Spory, whom you heard in the last episode, talking about the first thing that went wrong with the investigation on the day of the murder. We're not here to say we didn't make mistakes. Okay, there were some mistakes uh, that made that were made early in the investigation that kind of, uh, well, didn't kind of, but did 
hinder what happened later. And I don't want to put it off on the man, but the commander is the guy in charge. And if he doesn't coordinate it correctly, then things get screwed up. And my feeling was we were kind of... Hamstrung. Yeah, we were hamstrung. The biggest mistake, and I think you'll agree, is that on the day this happened, we pulled... They, we, I say we because I was part of the team, but it wasn't me. We pulled in probably the biggest suspect at 8 o'clock at night when we've all been working for 12 hours, which is not conducive to getting things taken care of. We pulled him in, talked to him, interviewed him on the same day that this hat went down. Essentially, what Hodak and Sporey are saying is that on the day of the murder, they feel like things went too fast. And decisions made that day continue to impact the current investigation. To understand what happened, we'll play you clips of detectives talking to Michael and his wife, Jill, on the day of the murder. To start, here's Detective Danny Rapert. Let me, let me explain something, Mike. Uh, I, I guess it's no secret to you. You're obviously a suspect. Oh, yeah. I mean, you and several other people, you were in the building. Um, it's also a known fact that, that you two weren't necessarily friendly. Well, we were. Uh, okay, let, let me finish. Yeah, I don't mean to interrupt you, but so as such, you become a suspect, and, and really, we need to read you your rights. It's required by the Constitution, because uh, well, let me read them to you, and then if you have any questions, we can answer them. Michael's given a form with his Miranda rights, which the officer reads through with him. But before he signs, Michael asks a question. What would be the? I guess I'm a little. I haven't been involved in this. Who would be the? Uh, the advantage of this phase of being a lawyer or well frankly if you're innocent you're wasting your money that's what if you got something to hide maybe you better call a lawyer yeah the thing is yeah okay mike whatever uh, i'm sure you got a lot of questions anyway you'd want to ask us and we can't even answer that questions unless you sign but then again you know we can't make you sign but if you got any questions you know anytime you don't want to talk you just turn it off so um It's a little hard to hear, but that sound at the end is Michael signing the form. How long have you been working here? Since July of 86. Okay. Um, Is that just what you do? You just just work here? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, I'm a student. Oh, you're also a student? Okay. What uh, what are you majoring in? Well, I was an MDiv student until... Master of Divinity student. Oh, okay, that's a new one. I'm used to biology students. And oh, yeah. <laughs> mathematics majors. This is more for pastoral work. Is it? And I graduated in December, and since I didn't have an internship lined up, I became I went into the THM program, which is postgraduate in theology, basically. So are you going to be a, does that make you be a minister then? Or? Eventually, that's the plan. Michael tells police that he finished his degree the previous semester, but he was taking some additional classes while he looked for a job in the ministry. To help pay for school, he worked under the physical plant director and managed the house cleaning staff of about a half dozen people who were all students, like Elizabeth. By all accounts, she was a pleasant and genial person, eager to help out anywhere she was needed, but people also said she was opinionated and could be stubborn when she thought things weren't being done properly. Over the years, she and Michael butted heads several times. It's just a little bit irascible. Every once in a while, she kind of just just kind of a little bit of a stubborn Scott, you know. And every once in a while, she kind of last year in particular, she'd go over my head every once in a while. She hasn't done it this year, uh, and I didn't know she was doing it last year until during the summer. 
Michael told police about an incident the year before where Elizabeth wanted to use bleach to clean some floors. But Michael didn't want her to use bleach because it could stain. He says Elizabeth flew off the handle with him about it, but eventually she agreed to use pine cleaner instead. Elizabeth preferred to let the toilet paper rolls in the bathrooms run completely out before replacing them. But Michael wanted them changed when they were almost empty. He chalked this up to her sense of Scottish thriftiness. Elizabeth didn't like using the campus vacuum cleaner because it was too noisy, even after Michael fixed it. Little stuff like that. Sometimes, when she wasn't getting what she wanted from Michael, Elizabeth would go over his head to Tom, the physical plant director, and this really irritated Michael. One interesting thing to note here is the possible connection between Elizabeth's disagreements with Michael and a past work experience in England. Although originally from Scotland, Elizabeth had worked for many years as a head nurse of a large hospital in London. According to a woman who knew Elizabeth well, at that hospital, Elizabeth had problems with a person who had once worked under her and then was promoted to be Elizabeth's supervisor. This person then had Elizabeth fired. Several people in the police report imply that some of Elizabeth's difficulties at Covenant were related to that prior experience. One person said that she had a nervous breakdown in England prior to coming to Covenant, and another said that the incident caused her a great deal of emotional problems. In a personal testimony that Elizabeth wrote for her church newsletter just a couple weeks before her murder, she references that job in London. She says that Job from the Old Testament would have described her last employment position as one of life's mysterious trials. She goes on to say how important it was for her, as a single woman, to see her professional expertise and career recognized, but how, at that hospital, her work ended up being, quote, a harrowing time of endless meetings, accusations, lies, and deceptions, unquote. She describes her decision to leave nursing and study at Covenant and how her faith and friends and church carried her through that change. Now, here I'm going to speculate, but I think it's reasonable that the two incidents in England and at Covenant could have been connected in Elizabeth's mind, consciously or otherwise. In England, she has a senior administrative role, but is fired by a former subordinate. Then she comes to America, where she works in a much less glamorous job as a custodian, but again, her supervisor is a much younger man with whom she often disagrees. It's possible that her relationship with Michael struck a nerve, given how her experience in England seemed to still be affecting her. Regardless, Elizabeth and Michael seemed to be getting along better in the months before the murder. So this year I got along with her very well. And, I, and we, I, she loved the fact that we did the inspections. She liked those. And uh, she, was, she, loved, she had a lot of fun with them. You know, she, uh, she wanted me to give her grades and all that kind of stuff, tongue in cheek sort of thing. Well, she always did very good work. And she up in, in the administration building and the chapel, her work is very, very good. And uh, there, there, was a, there was one or two things where we had, you know, we really went into disagreements. And, and my, I'm not a very confrontational kind of person, so I would usually kind of sit down and talk to her about it. And then finally, if, it, if we could work out something, I, I wouldn't necessarily force my way on her. It's a little hard to understand there, but Michael talked about doing inspections of Elizabeth's work, and he would give her graded reports, which was kind of tongue-in-cheek, because her work was always excellent. His impression was that she had fun with these reports and liked being evaluated, but a friend of Elizabeth's told the police that Elizabeth felt like she was being treated like a teenager because they were always checking up on her work. 
According to Michael, as you heard him say there at the end, he avoided confrontation. With the work staff that he supervised, he tended to write people memos versus talking to them in person. Many of the students on the house cleaning staff didn't speak English as their first language, and Michael found it difficult to speak with them, but easier to write. A couple weeks before Elizabeth's murder, she sent a frustrated note to Tom, Michael's boss, requesting some cleaning supplies because she had already asked Michael and he wasn't getting them for her. Urgent need of supplies. I already talked to Mike 10 days ago. Urgent is circled. We don't appear to have any of the following on the shelves in the stores. Any is all caps and underlined, as is the shelves. Elizabeth was very emphatic in her writing. When Tom got this handwritten note from Elizabeth, he immediately turned it back over to Michael, because Michael was Elizabeth's direct supervisor. According to Tom, Michael became upset with her bypassing the proper chain of command, and he prepared a letter to give back to her. In that letter, dated March 19th, Michael expresses his frustration that Elizabeth went over his head. He says it's difficult to interpret her note, on the surface at least, in any other way than an attempt to put him in a very bad light with Tom. He says, I recognize that this may be a misrepresentation, but it's the notion that most immediately comes to mind. My frustration with this note is augmented by the following. And here Michael gives an itemized list of the reasons. Virtually all the supplies Elizabeth requested are already in stock and there's nothing urgent about them. Michael prefers to have supply requests in writing on the request forms that he previously gave her. He concludes by saying, I only ask that when you can't find something in our stores, that you persist in the proper channels in procuring supplies. And Elizabeth responds in writing, saying this all seems to have gotten blown out of proportion. Mike, I can't believe the tone of your memo. Wouldn't it be better to meet and talk? Please, Mike, lighten up. You're a great supervisor, but don't take it so seriously. Give me a call. But Michael never did call Elizabeth. He told police that he didn't like talking to people on the phone. And besides, that week he had been ill and feeling depressed. So he put it off. According to him, that's why he was looking for her in the chapel on the morning of the murder, to finally have the conversation that he had been avoiding. Now, I read your statement, you went in, and you went there to talk with... Okay. I went there, and I, I might run across it, so I'd hope, I wanted to talk to her about a couple of things. And usually I passed it there anyway, just in case she's there. And sometimes, I, sometimes she works late. And I I'd, I'd think I left, left a memo with a, somebody along the way, one of the officers that I had sent to her. So I kind of went straight some of that out, whether I kind of touched base with her. So I went there hoping to kind of talk with her, but not really expecting her to be there since I didn't get out there too late, since I was up a couple times with the kids at night. So Michael was in the chapel that morning, kind of looking for Elizabeth, but also kind of not. The impression seems to be that he wouldn't have been disappointed if he couldn't find her. Before we go any further, I want to pause briefly to hear from a few people who knew Michael during his time at Covenant about how they experienced him on campus. Here's Jerem Bars. He was in charge of the, of the student cleaning cadre. You know, so, and I gather that he and Elizabeth didn't get on well, which doesn't surprise me at all. Why does that not surprise you? Um, they're both strong personalities. I think that Mike was probably, I didn't see him in that context, 
uh, of how he dealt with students working under him, but I wouldn't be surprised if he was a bit too authoritarian, perhaps domineering, and particularly to a woman. And a, a woman like Elizabeth, who's a very strong person, I can't see them getting on well together. But the fact that somebody had a row doesn't mean that they killed them. You, you've got to have some actual evidence rather than that people don't get on. I mean, there are lots of people who don't get on well and who have rows who wouldn't consider killing each other. So I, I don't think that's sufficient by itself. You, you'd have to have some actual evidence uh, against him. You could say it's a motive, but a motive by itself is not evidence for a murder. Did you have him as a student? Yes, I did. Okay. Can you speak to what was your impression of him as a student and your impression of their relationship? Uh, we got on fine. He's very bright. He was one of the brightest students at the time. Wrote outstanding papers. I knew him well enough that he invited us to their home for a meal. So I met his wife and, and little children. They had a little boy and a baby. But uh, yeah, I mean, I, I knew Michael well enough that he invited us to dinner and got on well, well enough with him. He enjoyed my classes. Uh, he was a very good student. You know, I, I think he was a, a strong character who wouldn't have found it, didn't perhaps find it easy working with somebody like Elizabeth. That's all I know. You know, I, I don't know anything else about that, and I know of no evidence whatsoever to convict him or to charge him. And the police obviously didn't find any. Otherwise, presumably, they would have charged him. Here's Skip and Bonnie Dusenberry. The main thing that, that I remember, and I don't know if I made the comment to you, but we, at different points, just kind of were puzzled as to why Michael was at seminary. How he ever uh, got you know, to seminary. Um, and, and preparing for the ministry. He just didn't seem, you know, in terms of his personality. And, of course, uh, being a minister is not a matter just of personality. But... Um, you do have to say hello to people. Yeah. And, and you pass them on the sidewalk. And uh, such a lack of personal interaction and warmth that, you know, Again, I remember wondering, and I probably commented to you uh, between us, you know, it just doesn't, he doesn't seem to be a fit for the ministry. We were puzzled as to why well, he was there. Yeah, I've never met Michael, but I've heard other people talk about him in interviews we've done and reading about him in the police reports. And he strikes me as the kind of person that maybe is more interested in like the intellectual, theological study part of being at seminary and maybe less interested in like the personal relational pastoral part of it. So, and that's not to say that one is necessarily better than the other. There's just different contexts and different people are suited to different things. But is that a type of person that you've encountered in the ministry? Yeah, it is. And that's, the, you know, it probably is a, a helpful, succinct way to characterize yeah. that. You know, and again, I think that is a type that you find, and um, and certainly again, that's that's the reason why I was always puzzled. I mean, Covenant did, um, I think it was you know theologically and intellectually rigorous, but it was particularly focused on preparing pastors more than scholars, like say Westminster, at least historically. At that point, that that was 
emphasis. And so um, I think that's why I was puzzled about Mike. So now back to Michael's interview with police on the day of the murder. Here's Detectives Hodak and Spory. Uh, there were two other detectives that were initially interviewing the suspect. And he was then, uh, the commander then had those two people leave, and two other people came in, and one of them happened to be one of our other detectives, Dan Rapert at the time. And Dan started taking what he had been viewing what was going on, and was trying to take a lead from those two previous detectives. And he was developing a, a pretty good rapport with the suspect. And everybody that was watching and we would review the videotape of this, uh, the suspect was really rather complacent. Unusual, if you're going to be accused of, of something this bad, that you wouldn't uh, be a little more forceful in some of your answers. And you're, you know, do you think, who, who did this? Ah, oh, I'm not sure who, who would have done so, something like yeah, this. Yeah, somebody must have been really mad at her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What kind of person do you think would do something like this, Mike? I don't know. Um, it's hard for you to imagine anyone on campus wanting to do it, but I don't know that much about Elizabeth. Why didn't ask that? But what kind of person would do something like this? Oh, it's someone I imagine would be pretty angry at. I don't know. I really don't. I really couldn't say. I really couldn't say, Michael says there. Detective Rapert interviewed Michael for a little over an hour, going over his movements that day, his relationship with Elizabeth, his thoughts on who might have committed the murder, and other things. After a short break where Michael went to get a drink of water, he's told that another detective has come up with some information and wants to ask him some questions. Here's Spory and Hodak talking about the change. Uh, but Dan was doing really good job. Really good job, we think. And then he was pulled. And then when he, he was pulled out of the interview room, somebody else came in, two other guys came in, which is not the way you're supposed yeah. to do it. And, and they stepped on his toes. Yep. And then they let him go. And then anybody who didn't think he was going to get an attorney at that point don't know anything about law enforcement because as soon as you let him go and he knows that he's a suspect, he ain't going to say anything else. So from the first day of the investigation, we were backtracking you know, to try to make the case we were behind the eight ball trying to go back to do what we, sh you know, there was really no reason to talk to him that late at night. There was really no reason to get in his face and let him go. Because we were still you, developing if suspects. Wanted, if you wanted to get into his face, then you stay with him all night long. Yeah. You don't let him go. Whether by accident, coincidence, or design, both the recording and transcript that we obtained of Michael's interview cut off just before the new detectives come in. So we don't know for sure how their interactions with Michael went compared with how Detective Rapert was handling him. Rapert wasn't antagonizing Michael, but he doesn't shy away from being confrontational at certain points either. It's not all buddy-buddy. Regardless, by 1.20 p.m. the next day, March 27th, when the police follow up with Michael to ask if he'd take a polygraph test, Michael said that under the advice of his attorney, he refused to participate. Two days later, on March 29th, Michael's attorney sent him a letter stating, not only should you and your wife refrain from talking to the police, but I believe that it would be prudent for the two of you to refrain from talking to anyone at all. With one exception that we'll talk about in a future episode, Michael and his wife, Jill, have more or less followed that advice to this day, 
We reached out to them for an interview and heard back through an intermediary. They said that if the case were ever solved, they'd be the first ones to do an interview telling their story. But given that it's still unsolved, talking would only bring more trouble and suspicion on them, which is understandable. There's been a cloud of guilty until proven innocent hanging over them for the last 33 years. Going back to the uh, the interview on the day of the murder, it was like a good cop, bad cop situation. Like the commander thought, OK, I'll put these two new guys in and we'll break him right now. Or what's the thinking behind that? There was the good cop. You referred to a good cop, bad cop. Danny was the good cop. Yeah. And uh, but it was trying. You try to build up a rapport with this person and you try to get them at ease be uh, but if you were able to see the uh, the tape, he was really at ease. Yeah, he was pretty much at ease. He had, uh, this one suspect had his Bible with him. And I think that was I would, was a crutch for him because he would keep his hand on her. He would touch it like this. And he, he ended up making some gestures in the, during the interview. If a question was asked, he would give a nervous laugh. And when you're in an investigation, you're learning how to interview people, you look for those little cues. If you remember back to episode one, Kyle kept referring to the main suspect as Bible boy. This is why. The officers felt like Michael was using his Bible as a sort of security blanket. At some point, an innocent person is going to have enough, okay? And after you've told your story three or four or five, six times, there's nothing else you can say for an innocent person. And so innocent people tend to get a little upset when they keep getting accused. Like, you're accusing me of doing it? Is that what this is? And then they'll start to get mad and they'll say, I can't tell you anything else, I didn't do it. I can't tell you anything else, I didn't do it. This particular person we're talking about never got to that point. He was cool as a cucumber the whole way. And I think had we left, had I keep saying we, wasn't my decision. Had they left Danny Rapert in there, because he had a rapport with the guy, Danny might not have got him to confess, but would have got a whole much more information. A whole lot more. Yeah, instead of getting up in his face and calling him. Whatever. Yeah. But let me say this, too. I don't want to say that this he was our only suspect. Okay, we did check into several other people. He was the main suspect, but any information that we came up with on somebody else we would look into it. Oh, yeah. There was yeah. five. At least five, yeah. and then even more later on, because the seminary continued to think it was somebody from the outside. And that was one of the <laughs> and so we did guys, problems we had with the seminary. Yeah, we, we would do at least two or three supposedly transients mm-hmm. uh, that we checked into or located and found and checked into. And other. So it wasn't like this was the only guy. He was the main guy, but he wasn't the only guy. In this episode, we're focusing on Michael, but we'll talk more about some of the other suspects in future episodes. I was intrigued by Hodak's idea that eventually an innocent person will get upset with the police if they're being accused of a crime. Because as he was saying that, I was thinking, I hope I'm never accused of a crime because I think I'd act the same way that Michael did. I would have assumed that getting upset with the police would make them think I was guilty, not innocent. Ruth and I wanted to explore this idea about police interrogation methods and how they view suspect responses. So we got in touch with Dave Thompson, president of Wicklander Zalowski. 
a company that specializes in investigative interview training. One thing that police have told us in talking about this specific interview is that they, they um, talk about Michael's, and we're just using first names, they talk about Michael's affect. He seems very flat, he seems very, you know, relatively calm, he's not reacting very much to the severity of the situation. How does that explanation strike you, and is, is that an appropriate um, interpretation, maybe, of how somebody might be in an interview? I, I don't blame the investigators for having that opinion. Um, especially at the time, uh, what 1990, when the interview was, when interviews were conducted, and, and more than likely the way they were trained. But now, looking back 30 years later, in hindsight, we have research now that talks about trauma and how trauma may impact somebody's behavior, their memory, uh, how they might appear in the interview. We've got research that looks at how victims or witnesses have been misclassified as guilty because they appeared flat. Or I think there's one incident here where we got, maybe it was Michael that laughed during a a response um, that gets misclassified as guilt, but maybe that's how some people respond, respond to things. And some of the research today shows us that our ability to detect deception based off somebody's physical behavior is about 54% accurate. So flipping it, flipping a coin. So yeah, somebody being flat, I could see as an investigator thinking, hey, this person, you know, has somebody known to them. They're, they're being investigated for this ter- terrible kind of heinous crime. They should be emotional and upset. I'd be emotional. I'd be defensive. But we can't make an assumption of how somebody else would act because we're all going to handle that a little bit differently. So weird does not always mean guilty. And that's where it's it's tough that there's not a magic wand to know that answer, I guess especially when you have a cold case or maybe just a case not a lot of evidence, you see a lot of investigators often walk in with a, a mindset of a kind of a presumption of guilt. So maybe we think TJ's our suspect because there's a witness that says it looks like TJ. And so sometimes an investigator may have this bias and they walk into the investigation with no DNA, no fingerprints, no nothing else, but they've got this witness who has a rough idea and you see an interview take on a, a guilt-presumptive approach where it's very much accusatory. They refuse to accept alternative theories or denial. So the long-winded answer to that is I'd rather have an interviewer ask more open-ended questions, fact-gathering questions, and try to establish a version of a story versus maybe known evidence or other events and try to compare the two versus how did somebody look or feel during the interview? Do they feel guilty? Because uh, that that's where we lead to some of the issues with misclassification and false confessions. So what we would teach in today's world, if you're seeing a lot of these changes in behavior, or maybe somebody's behavior doesn't seem to meet what you think they should be responding, is that should just be the investigative mindset. All right, let me ask more questions. Let me figure out more about that topic. Maybe there's other evidence that we can prove or disprove their story versus I ask a question, they avoided eye contact, they seemed a little defensive, check mark, that's a bad answer. We're getting away from that type of mindset. What is beneficial, by the way, and surprising, is that you have recordings from interviews from 30 years ago, and, and, and not just by confession. Now, if I looked typically at a case from that era, you're, you only see video or audio of a confession, and it's usually just the last 
10 minutes of here's the end result of this magic work that we did and you don't have the transparency of how did you get there and it's also rare to see more witness type interviews being recorded so i think when you ask me the first question is kind of what does best practice look like recording is best practice and having the ability even as an investor if you're the cold case investigator being able to go back and pick out all these details and further investigate is a huge benefit versus relying on somebody's police report of what they recalled happened and hoping that that's accurate and transparent to what actually happened so i just i think that's well done by the agency what maybe that was policy at the time but well done by them to have those recorded not only is it great that the creve Corps police recorded so many hours of interviews but to their credit they've been incredibly helpful in giving us access to all of it along with other reports and documents from the investigation this project would not have been possible without that cooperation so when the police brought michael in for questioning the day of the murder it wasn't just his demeanor that raised their suspicion. Earlier in the day, detectives Hodak and Spory, who you've been listening to, interviewed Michael's wife, Jill, at their apartment on campus. And when Michael was brought to the station for his interview later that evening, Jill was brought in for her own separate interview. Of special interest to the investigators was the timing of Michael's movements earlier that morning. He says he got up around 6.30 and arrived on campus to look for Elizabeth around 7.10. Uh, we just want to go over again what transpired or what happened yesterday or this morning with uh, Mike. And because we've got some problems with the fact that uh, some things are just not meshing right. We're trying to get everything meshed right. Okay. Okay. So what time did he leave about? Around um, 7, I think. It takes time to take a shower and shave and get dressed. So we left around 7. He made a point of kissing Kirstie and me, Carl. I want to linger here to talk about this supposed discrepancy in the time that Michael left. Throughout the hours of interviews and the hundreds of pages of reports that we reviewed, the police seem to fixate on this idea that Michael and Jill contradict what time Michael left the house that morning. Michael consistently maintained, across several statements and interviews, that he woke up around 6.30 and left his apartment around 7.05, although the clock on their apartment ran a few minutes fast. Michael and his family lived in the apartments on campus, so it was only a short walk to get to the chapel. Jill initially told police that she thought he left sometime between 6.45 and 7. And then in her recorded interview, as you just heard, she says he left around 7 a.m. She also says that he woke up around 6.30. Here's Detective Rapert talking to Michael about the supposed discrepancies. I had your wife go over your time. Uh, her times and your times are different. She's got you leaving a little earlier. Yeah, she said. probably did. She probably, I'm a little bit more conscious of what I, because I have to keep track of the hours. I do want a little bit of time for the, for the devotional time, so like that. I'm, more, I'm a little more conscious of where the time is than she is. She doesn't go anywhere. She was staying there in the morning, so it wouldn't have been something that she would have been uh, terribly conscious of. She mentioned that she'd tell me what the times were, and I realized it was a little bit earlier than, uh, than I said. But, but well, for instance, um, I talked to, when I was in the chapel, I talked to John. Mm-hmm. Well, John put your time a little earlier, too. Well, it wasn't that much earlier. 
the John that they're referring to is the student that we talked about in the last episode. He's the student that would sometimes sing alone in the mornings. Michael saw him in lecture room one when he opened the door to turn the lights out. According to John's statement to the police on the night of the murder, he remembers looking at his watch at exactly 7.17 that morning because he was keeping track of the time to make sure he finished his prayer session by 8 o'clock. And he thought that Michael opened the door about 10 minutes prior to that, putting the time of their interaction around 7.07. Like I said, the clock chimed 7 uh, as I was leaving, so... And it's 7 minutes fast, so it wouldn't have been much different than that. There may be, there may be some difference. Like I said, I would, uh, there may be a little bit of difference. Like it may have been 7 one by the time I had the chat was one but it wasn't that terrible much difference. Hmm. Well, as you may not know, the, uh, the art of uh, forensic science, which is the study of obviously dead bodies, as gruesome as it may be, is probably one of the more uh, exacting sciences. They know more about dead bodies than they do about live ones because they can cut them open, take them apart, put them under a microscope, which is essentially what they've done in this case. And they've been able to pretty much pinpoint when the murder took place, which is why we're trying to narrow down the times so terribly much. I don't know. You know, we could have put you in there a few minutes earlier. In essence, you're in the building looking for Elizabeth at the time that Elizabeth was being murdered. I think it's important to point out that that last statement by Detective Raper just isn't true. Nowhere in the medical examiner's report is Elizabeth's time of death specified. And the final major case squad report says this, quote, We believe that the attack occurred prior to 6.20 a.m., which is the time that Rob arrived at the chapel, or the attack would have been heard, unquote. Rob is the student that was in the chapel practicing his sermon the night before and again that morning. It's also worth saying that at this point, only 12 or so hours after the murder, while the coroner or someone on the scene could have roughly guessed at Elizabeth's time of death, it's highly unlikely that they would have pinpointed an exact time. What's much more likely is that Detective Rapert is simply trying to get Michael to crack under the pressure, under the guise that the police know much more than they actually did at that moment. To me, for all practical purposes, Michael, Jill, and John are all saying the same thing. They might each be off by a couple minutes one way or another, but it's not like there's hours between their times. And it all seems like an irrelevant point anyway, because Elizabeth was almost certainly killed between 5 and 6 a.m. So a few minutes difference in Michael leaving his apartment around 7 a.m. wouldn't have any bearing on whether he committed the murder. The only way that's possible is if Michael and Jill are telling a coordinated lie, and Michael was actually at the chapel at the time that he and Jill both say that he was asleep at home. One last interesting thing to note about their differences in the timeline. The following week, on April 4th, Jill was interviewed again at the Creepcore police station, but this time with her attorney present. When asked again to clarify Michael's movements on the morning of the murder, Jill says that she knows there's discrepancies in her timeline from what Michael gave the police, but she won't give any further statements until she's had a chance to discuss it with Michael and the attorney. There's no recording of this interview and no further clarification in the report, so I'm not sure what to make of it. Was there something about her original version of the timeline that she knew wasn't accurate? Or did she think that there were discrepancies because of what the police told her? 
because based on their original statements, there is no discrepancy between Michael and Jill's times. Aside from the logistical questions of Michael's movements, the police were also interested in his mindset. Michael tells them, and Jill agrees, that he had been under tremendous pressure lately. They had to move houses twice in just the last couple months, and Michael was having trouble finding a job in the ministry. On Sunday, March 25th, the day before the murder, Michael learned that the church that they had been sporadically attending would not give him a recommendation for an internship. And this led to a big fight with him and Jill. Another couple that attended Covenant told police that Michael and Jill were an immature couple. Their relationship was strained and that Jill thought Michael wasn't trying hard enough to get a job. So the police were interested in that argument and whether or not Michael told Jill about his plans to talk to Elizabeth the next morning. Last night, have a conversation with your wife about Elizabeth? No, I don't think so. Last night, our, our thoughts were animated about, captivated, whatever about. It's kind of a long story. I've been attending a church, Covenant Presbyterian Church, for some for three and a half years since we've been here. And this last semester, I've really been visiting around other churches and not attending it very much. Covenant's been going through some traumas as well in a building program and stuff. And I've been planning to move out anyway into some internship. And so I hadn't been attending a church right often. Uh, I also wanted to go under licensure this April at the Presbyterian meeting. And one thing I didn't realize was I needed this, uh, a session's recommendation for that. Since Covenant was the church I'd attended the most, I'd ask them for a recommendation. Since I hadn't been attending very much, they said they wouldn't. I found out Sunday night, probably around 5 o'clock or so, that they wouldn't give me a recommendation, which was a little bit frustrating. So we were a little bit uh, anxious about that. Did you have a conversation with him uh, the night before about this? Sunday? Last night? Yeah. yeah. About him, about the fact that he was going to go and talk to her or something? I, we talked about a lot of things last night. One of them being the fact that he has a hard time confronting people. And uh, it may have come, we may have discussed that he needed to talk to Elizabeth. But he didn't, he didn't, he didn't make any, he didn't tell me specifically, well, first thing tomorrow morning, I'm going to look for Elizabeth to talk to her about this. I don't remember him saying anything like that. Jill's holding her nine-month-old baby during the interview, and the audio gets pretty hard to understand as the baby gets more and more upset. For what it's worth, you're going to hear from that baby in a future episode. The way Michael and Jill describe it, their conversation on March 25th sounds like it wasn't a big deal. And both of them are pretty cagey about whether or not Elizabeth was a topic during the argument. But according to multiple people we spoke with, the argument was more heated. They say Michael grabbed Jill by the hair and dragged her around. And here it's worth noting that, according to the forensic evidence, Elizabeth's killer grabbed her by the hair and dragged her into the bathroom. As we did our research for this series, we heard multiple people say something that they heard from Michael and Jill's next-door neighbors on campus. As the neighbors described it, there was a lot of noise coming out of that apartment. This is a detail that will stick in the minds of the police as they think about someone who might be violent towards a woman or a colleague. During her interview, Detective Hodak asked Jill whether she and Michael ever had issues in their marriage. He doesn't have a temper, does he? 
Well, he does have a temper, Jill says. Sometimes. He hasn't hit her, but he has grabbed her. On the tape, after she says this, there's a long pause. In another part of the police report, but separate from her recorded interview, Jill tells police that Michael would sometimes grab her by the hair. I want to stress here that we're including these details because they are relevant to this story and to the police investigation. But nothing we've just described is equal to murder. And as we'll say again and again, Michael has never been charged with any crime, and he is innocent until proven guilty. And Michael isn't the only person on Covenant's campus who, as it turned out, had a history of negative or violent actions against women. As we'll talk about in future episodes, there are some concerning questions about how much the Covenant administration knew about these men and what they did or didn't do about them. And as Detective Spory briefly mentioned, the police had some issues with the way that the Covenant administration handled the investigation. We'll talk more about those issues in the next episode. I remember working, and I don't know how long we were there that day, but the Major case squad went from early to late. I mean, we you work more, almost 12 hours, 14 hours. But I remember big heavy set detective from University City. We were going home, uh, and we were on the elevator, and he goes, George, you okay? And I said, yeah. He goes, man, you look like shit. <laughs> <laughs> I said, well, I've been here all day. And it it did. It, it wore, and I can tell you when... I was assistant commander later on with the major K squad. I wasn't the head G's, but I was like second in charge cheese when they called us out. And I can remember thinking, now what did we do wrong at that one that we're not going to do wrong on this one? Mm-hmm. All right. And, you know, there were some things we were really tired. And I can remember saying, okay, we're tired, boys. We're going home. And like half of them, you know, half of the guys said, well, we can't. It's still open. I go, you're tired. You're going to screw up. Go home. Come back tomorrow at seven or whatever. So I, I use that as a kind of a learning tool of what not to do, even though we still made mistakes. <laughs> but, and every investigation has a mistake because you weren't there. You're just trying to piece things together. You can't possibly get everything right. So it's the end of the day on March 26, 1990, the day of the murder. The police consider Michael as their prime suspect, although he wasn't the only suspect. Many of the people on the Covenant campus were in shock and didn't want to believe that Elizabeth's killer could be one of them. But others, like Professor Jerem Bars, weren't afraid to face the most likely possibility. You know, the day is not clear in my mind. It just is an overwhelming feeling of shock and horror that such a thing could happen at the seminary. And you take refuge in the notion that has to be somebody from outside. You know, some bizarre thing, somebody wandering in and killing her, but you know that's not true, even if you sort of vaguely hope it is. It has to be somebody who knew her here. One of her fellow students, somebody on the staff, one of the faculty, and one's assumption had to be it was one of our students. True Believer is written, recorded, edited, Mixed and executive produced by T.J. Ingracia. Co-written and co-produced by Ruth Servan-Smith. Research and development by Kyle Hackman and Doug Servan. Visit truebeliverpodcast.com to see additional materials related to each episode or to get in touch with us. If you're someone who knew Elizabeth 
or have any information related to her murder, we'd love to hear from you. Next time on True Believer. It had to be somebody she knew or she wouldn't have opened the door or it had to be someone with a key to have access to the door. You know, they don't know who did it, but it's being investigated and we might need to brace ourselves for the fact, you know, it might be someone we know. Not being able to have the cooperation we, th- we would have suspected we had gotten from the seminary was frustrating. And that played out years and years and years after that. And they actually did their own investigation, which we've never seen. I did not know until a couple of weeks ago that people were discouraged from cooperating with the police. I had no idea of that. I'm appalled by it.